Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. The Green Goblin, you like that? Mr. Jameson. Made it up myself. These weirdos all gotta have a name now. Mr. Jameson, Spider-Man. Hoffman? Yeah? Call the patent office, copyright the name Green Goblin. I want a quarter every time somebody says it. How about Green Meanie? Spider-Man wasn't attacking the city. He was trying to save it. That's slander. It is not. I resent that. Slander is spoken. In print, it's libel. You don't trust anybody. That's your problem. I trust my barber. Hello, Bartek. Greetings, Ryan. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing very well. We are spitting Polish, aren't we? You're the spit, I'm the Polish. Everyone can tell that because Bartek's name is very spit and mine is very Polish, as you as you can tell, Ryan. Classic Polish name. Bartek, classic spitting name. Like, it's hard to spit that name out all in one go. We both have two S's in our last names, like we, spit. We do, but I have more I's. Mm. I have more repeating letters in my last name than you do. All of the letters in my last name repeat except for P-R-Y. Yeah, but mine repeat more so because I have three I's. You only repeat like two at a time. You don't have any threes in there, do you? No, no. No, no. I took a gamble with that one because I can't remember your last name. Spot. I'm like, he doesn't have three A's, does he? <laughs> no, no, no. Just the two. Just it begins with K-A and ends with A-K. There you go. A-K-47. So we are spinning Polish cyclically because we're always spinning. We, are both happen we both happen to be Polish. Uh, Bartek, do you have any Polish wisdom to bestow upon us for this episode? I always throw it at you <laughs> like it's a surprise because it is. There, there was a period where you did it every episode and it hasn't happened in like months now and now you do it again. I can, I've conditioned <laughs> you not to think it will happen and then I throw it at you and it's like, whoa! The Polish word for spider is pająk and when you spell it, it's P-A-J-O-N-K, so it's like pajonk. And what's man? Uh, człowiek. So, what's the film we're covering in <laughs> Polish? Uh, if we were to literally translate the two words, I guess it would be Pająk człowiek. <laughs> would that not be what it's called? I'd uh, just probably Spider-Man. Really? <laughs> they just pronounce it with an accent? They well, because wanna... it's a character's name, so that, yeah. It's... yeah they don't, they, don't they have other characters' names be Polish equivalencies? I guess Mr. Bean, but not really superheroes. Oh, so how come Mr. Bean gets it and then Spider-Man uh, doesn't? It's a big mystery. What was Mr. Bean again? Uh, Yash Fasola. Which, Fasola means bean. I don't know what Yash means. Mr. Well, it'd be pun. So it'd be pun Fasola. Oh, okay. So we are covering the Spider-Man movie from 2002 for our show Pictures Pow Wow, a show in which we talk about a movie that's come recommended. I recommended this movie for this episode. So, of course, if people out there have not seen uh, this Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, we're going to talk about it in spoilers. You've had almost 20 years, people. Um, we're not holding back. Spoiler alert, it's a love story. That's there, the movie. There is love. But it, that's the movie. It's a love story. Mm-hmm. Um, so they let's... say there, there are four types of love, and this one has a few of them. Yeah, yeah. But, Bartek, let's dive straight into the discussion. What is your history and relationship with the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, and this one in particular? I'm very certain that I've seen all of them in cinemas, so mm. I, was, I was fresh on the boat when these came out. Um... And I enjoyed them greatly growing up. Uh, it's mm -hmm. been a very long time since I've watched any of them, so you picking this film for the podcast was a very, very nice treat. Yeah. Um, and 
I appreciate it greatly, and I had a great time watching it, and I'm looking forward to the rest of this episode and our discussion. What is your feelings on the character of Spider-Man and the superhero genre, whether they be films or the actual media that they are from, which are comics? Uh, comics I've never really been into at all. I'm not sure if I've read any of the, like, you know, Marvel, DC kind of comics. Um, as for... You know Killing Joke, right? I know the Killing Joke, yes. I've read comics, Wolverine (laughs) Bub, the old reference. Um, what was I saying? Uh, in terms of my relationship with superhero movies, this trilogy, beginning with this film, Mm. obviously, is kind of always been in my head growing up as, oh, this is the codifier of what a superhero movie is. Mm. Um, there are obvi- obviously there have been films before and after this one. Not the X-Men? I i don't think I'd seen any of them before seeing the Spider-Man films. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know I've definitely seen some of them afterwards. Um, so yeah, these, these were always just my ideal for like, oh, this is what a superhero movie is. Mm. Um, but in general... I, I've been a fan of these films, not so much the genre itself. So mm. when I have seen other superhero films, you know, some of them I have enjoyed, some of them I haven't. But in general, it was just like, I, I guess the, that trilogy was just, you know, special. So the superhero genre isn't really something that tickles your fancy, but these particular movies stuck with you because they came at you at a certain age? Or do you think even when you were younger, you recognized the the quality and the filmmaking and the storytelling? I think probably the former. I don't know that I was as intelligent as I am now. But what about all these years later, thinking back on those movies? Because you've seen them since you saw them in the cinema, yeah? Yes, but like I said, it's been a long time. I think it was before I became friends with you that I last Mm. saw one of these films. Mm. Um, Yeah, so... Sorry, what's the question again? <laughs> oh, it was more about there was the question of. Uh, oh, what do, do I think of movies, them now? Yeah, what do you think of them now? I guess it was more about like, what about them has stuck with you as being a top tier superhero genre movie in comparison to more recent entries and ones from your own childhood, like the X Men films. I guess th- thinking about the character of of Spider Man himself, you know, Peter Parker. His story always seemed interesting to me. Like, mm-hmm. I, again, I come from a family where we're, we're not into superheroes. My mum hates the entire genre and how it, like, you know, encapsulates the mainstream Even Hollywood. this movie? Well, and that this is the exception. She always liked these films because there was this very human element to them. Like, yeah. I, I'd forgotten the fact that this film is almost kind of like two short films in one, where, like, the first half is really the origin story, yeah. and the second half is basically the next chapter of, like, mm. you know, the first villain and all that. And they had very distinct styles, and they came together to make this complete story of, of yeah, the beginning of this character and the stakes at which uh, he operates. In a way, you with your two short films idea, it could also be four short films because this is also the story about the Green Goblin's origin story and journey as a villain mm. because a lot of his sequences are on his own outside of Spider-Man and then he converges with Spider-Man as that well. That is true. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I grew up with these movies the only one I saw in the cinema from my recollection is the second one. I definitely remember the second one. Third one, didn't see it at the cinema. This one, I do not remember if that was the case, and I don't think it was. 
Um, I I swear I remember if it was, but I remember the advertisements. I remember the video games. I remember all the merchandising, Same. the old TV shows that they were playing at the time to get you all hyped for Spider-Man, whether they be the 60s ones or the 90s show or whatever. All of that was happening. I remember the advertisements for the second one in particular. The the Doc Ock arms crawling up and throwing things. And ugh, just, it really sticks in your brain, that the, the marketing for the second one. But I watch this movie a lot. And out of the Spider-Man movies, even up till now, this is my personal favorite. Doesn't mean it. I think it's the best one. But it's my favorite. Mm-hmm. I've always loved the story. I've always loved the villain and the hero dynamic. Even from a young age, I didn't mind the love story in this movie like I did with the prequels love story, which were happening around the same time. Uh, These yeah, movies Wars, inter- yeah. intersected with the yeah with the Star Wars prequels. Their love story is and this love story uh, night and day to me, even as a child. Um, and I enjoyed the humor of it. I enjoyed how gleefully happy it was without compromising the seriousness like the Batman films in my childhood did. When, when I watched those Batman films as a child, the, the Schumacher ones, I had fun with them. They were fun, but I felt like they, even as a child, that they were movies made for me as a child, while these, this Spider-Man movie and the other Raimi ones, they felt like, yeah, sure, they're made for young people, but there's this maturity there underneath all the campiness, underneath all the silly lines like it's you who's out gobby out of your mind. Yeah. You still have moments that gut punch you. Like as a full grown adult, I I and this is my nostalgia and my bias, but when you know, it's jumped straight to the end, when you have Don't Tell Harry, that line, Don't Tell Harry, it still hits me in the gut. Mm. Because it's like, oh man, poor Norman. You know, even though he's a despicable guy, just it hits me, and it hit me back then as a kid. Because usually in the movies, the villains are villains, even to the end. Yeah. And Green Goblin was following that track, but also kind of not really at points. And then that moment, it's like, oh. But in a way, too, it's still a villainous act because he's putting the burden on Peter that shouldn't be put there. True, but it's also like a desperate final act, so... Yeah, but... It's it's multi-layered. He's a shitty dad, so what does he care? You know, like, Self-admitted it, shitty dad. Yeah, and uh, so I loved these movies. Spider-Man is a character I've always enjoyed. I have not read as many comics as I ha- of his as I have of, of the other big superheroes. I've read more Batmans, I've read more... Uh, a couple more Supermans, not, not that many. The the comics uh, I just haven't had in my hands. They usually, when I read comics, especially when I was a kid, they were given to me by other people. I was borrowing them. And no one I knew really read a lot of Spider-Man. It was more X-Men, Superman, Batman, and uh, yeah, stuff like that. But Spider-Man, I've read a few. But yeah, I loved the Spider-Man games, the PlayStation games. Yeah, yeah. Not, I mean, the PlayStation 2, Spider-Man 2 game is like still one of the best Spider-Man games. But... I grew up with those games. I grew up with the morning cartoon shows. I, I've always liked Spider-Man as a character. I like Peter Parker and the duality he has to face. And yes, of course, great power comes great responsibility. I also like his villains. They're always fun. I like uh, J. Jonah Jameson and uh, Mary Jane Watson. All of this is stuff I've always enjoyed. And even now in my cynical older age in which I have grown tired of the superhero, the superhero genre, I'm... Like I've said, I'm not as huge into them either, but I've watched a lot of them because they're popcorn entertainment and there are some good ones out there, like Logan, great film, Mm -hmm. or Into the Spider-Verse, a fantastic movie. 
And out of all of the big superheroes, Spider-Man's the one out of the movie franchises I've always come back to. There's been a couple of X-Men movies where I didn't even bother. Like, I've never seen X-Men Origins Wolverine. I've never seen it. Mm. Never been bothered to. I didn't see First Class until way after Days of Future Past because I was just not interested. And when we talked about that on Tremors, neither of us could remember what the pl- like what was the plot of First Class. Yeah, X-Men. right. We're like, right. what was Kevin Bacon in that? He was a villain, but what did he want? I don't know. I can't remember. I can tell you in what Amazing Spider-Man happened, even though I don't like the Amazing Spider-Man movies, I can tell you what happened in them because they were dumb and they followed the basic beats of Sp- Spider-Man. And even now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man interpretations, I enjoy that character still, even though I have some issues with those movies. I still enjoy this character all these all these years later, and it all stems from this film, the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man. It captured my heart as a child to the point in which I'm still following the adventures of this character, even in different incarnations, you know, different versions, different yeah. iterations, different directors' visions, yeah. different styles you know this is very much a throwback to the 60s comic books that they were supposed to be from like he's from it's very corny very over the top as people can tell from my passionate talk here i still like this movie very much but like it's been a while since you visited the this film yeah how was it for you coming back it was an absolute joy uh, a true treat <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. well what about it was a true treat to you what were some of the elements that stood out so right from the beginning, we get introduced to our main character, Peter Parker. We learn that, you know, he's a dork and everyone, you know, kind of makes fun of him. He's he's not popular. Mm. And there and you do have all of these like tropes and cliches of dorky characters being played with him, but they're not put to such an exaggerated degree that it becomes kind of like a caricature of like, oh guy, this guy is just so dorky that like, yeah, of course he gets bullied. This isn't yeah, no... and then he to- falls into the toxic waste, <laughs> then, right? And it becomes yeah. toxic. Eventually. This is in no way a criticism of bedazzled, but like at the beginning of that. <laughs> but <at> the... <laughs> I didn't expect. I didn't expect fucking the bedazzled to come out. Go on. At the very beginning of that film, you know, we we learn that Brendan Fraser is this like dork, and for that beginning portion, it's exaggerated how much he is. Like he mm. just does not get. It's cringy. It's cringy. There's this cringe element with Peter Parker. You don't have that cringe element. It's just like, you know, there's a history to this guy of having been made fun of. And even though he seems like a relatively average guy, mm-hmm. that whole history just comes out on top and seeing him transform from that in a very slow way throughout that first mm. half of the film. Like he, he notices like, Oh, I can I can see now without my glasses. Mm. I I have all these senses and moves. I I am strong. Mm. It's just a really interesting slow paced transformation, which, as you said, is fun. Yeah, I this well this film captures what makes a Spider Man Peter Parker character endure all these decades. You know, he's vulnerable. He's not Superman. And he's not Batman either, where Batman is like, well, I'm rich and smart and I can do whatever I want. This is just like some poor kid who lives with his aunt and uncle and can not even catch the bus in the morning because even the bus driver hates him, right? And, yeah. And of course that's exaggerated for effect, but it still, it still hammers home the point that the Spider-Man character has 
has to him. He's just, uh, he's relatable because of how pathetic he is in a lot of ways. But I mean pathetic in a good way. He's a good person. Um, And uh, that lesson is tried and true, and it still works in this movie, you know, nearly 20 years later. Obviously, there are some aspects that you don't see in movies now, and uh, some aspects that are definitely, this would not have come across in any Spider-Man movie if it wasn't for Sam Raimi directing it and being a part of the creative team. Um, Yeah, watching it the other night for this, I was struck by how much I actually cared about Peter Parker. When I was younger, and I've watched it before, I either get focused on, oh, the action, or oh, the spectacle, or oh, the heady themes, or the emotional moments, or oh, Green Goblin, mainly, let's be honest, Green Goblin, J. Jonah Jameson. But on this watching of it, I was really bowled over by Tobey Maguire, of course, but I was just really bowled over by the the deep, extensive character work that was done with Peter and how he went through several arcs in this movie of being young and naive but also young and arrogant and how both of those aspects of his personality could be very like can cost quite a lot Mm. um and you know you have to stand up but in what way do you do it and yeah I I really cared about him and I've in the other Spider-Man movies outside of Into the Spider-Verse, I don't actually care about the character of Peter Parker or Spider-Man. I just enjoy watching them, but I don't actually have investment in them because they're either very handsome or perfect and they're always full of quips and they're the smart guy in the room. And they lack that relatability and that down-to-earth nature that, that Tobey Maguire has in this movie as, as as Peter Parker. And I think it's not just his performance, it's the direction, but just the writing. They knew, they know what what's the right amount to put in of him being just down-to-earth and um, pathetic and sad and nerdy. He also is like the only one out of these film Spider-Mans that I actually think is a nerd, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I remember online years ago, there was this common train of thought going around that, like, uh, Maguire was the best Peter Parker, Mm. Garfield was a better Spider-Man, and then Tom Holland is, like, the best of both worlds going Mm. on. I've never seen any of the Tom Holland ones, so I can't speak to that. Mm. He's a great performer. Mm. Great performance. I think Tom Holland is probably the best at capturing both, but the writing is... Very lacking with the Peter Parker element to me. Right. And also, he's handsome. He's very handsome. So when you have people bullying him in high school, I'm like, I... no. <laughs> no, I don't believe that. And yeah, the writing around the Peter Parker aspects are lacking. But performance-wise, I think he, Tom Holland definitely does capture a great balance between the two. That's good to hear. But mm, to me, it's the writing in that. But here in the Raimi movie... I actually really cared. What about you? I know you have similar sentiments to me about these superhero movies where you're more fascinated by the elements outside of the actual hero. It's it's the villain. It's the world. It's the mm. ideologies. Well, yeah, a few minutes ago you said, let's be honest, Willem Dafoe and J. Jonah Jameson. Like, those mm. are the big, like, exaggerated, you know, character things. Oh, and Bonesaw, of course. <laughs> um, those are the ones that we'll be quoting. You mean Randy Savage? Randy Savage. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, we're not we're not going to so much be quoting Peter Parker outside of maybe like I missed the part where it's my problem or whatever that line was. It's you who's gobby. It's you who's out, <laughs> it's gobby. You. out of your mind. It's you who's gobby. I'm, I'm going to use that. Okay, I'll I'll admit to that. It's you. It's you who's gobby. Gobby, gobby, gobby. Oh come on! There's so many great lines from Peter Parker. Like all the memes. There are a lot of memes that came from just Peter Parker. Um, but go on, you were saying those big flashy characters do definitely capture the heart, but were those the big ones that captured uh, your heart? Those are, well, not so much the heart, those are the ones that, like, capture the the memory, the things that mm. you'll be quoting. Yeah, they, they're the long-lasting things yeah. because they are so overarched. Yeah, but with capturing the heart, I definitely think Tobey Maguire uh, definitely has the part that captures the heart. Like, I'd forgotten... Pretty much all of, except for the second last interaction he had with his Uncle Ben in this film. Mm-hmm. You know, the one in the car. Mm-hmm. And those were very touching. Yeah. You genuinely felt like they cared for one another, but Peter, you know, he he, he became internalised because of his new spider powers and he was trying to get a car and... Yeah, and he and he strayed away, uh, but he still cared. But he was being a young, arrogant teenager. Yeah, for for as much as I remember of this trilogy, like most of it does not have Uncle Ben in it. So seeing that mm. early part, knowing what's gonna come, and seeing how he he he's a dork. He doesn't have everything going for him, but he is happy with his family life, and mm. how he starts to neglect that before things go really wrong. And. I really love with with you just said something that really sparked my brain the the neglect of family. It ties in perfectly with what's going on with Norman mm-hmm. because Norman is neglecting his family for the superpowers as well. But his is a villain story. He doesn't learn. He doesn't grow. He doesn't try to change or adapt. He doesn't take the great power with great responsibility. He's irresponsible with it. And, you know, it's obvious It's obvious stuff, but sometimes some of this obvious stuff gets forgotten over time, and you watch these superhero movies with the villains that are just like, I'm Jeff Bridges, and I just built a bigger Iron Man suit so I can punch you in the face. I'll never forget that. I'll never <laughs> fucking forget that. And, you know, simple things like the editing of both the hero and the villain being born at the same time. You know, mm. their their transformations to their state happen at the same time. Whether it actually happens literally at the same time in the universe doesn't matter. In the film, it's communicating across the point in just visual language. And, uh, you know, it's weird to say that, but I miss that. And that's what we both really enjoyed to flick to Into the Spider-Verse. You, I remember uh, we watched in the Spider-Verse, I had told you that it was really good, but I kind of remember before we actually put it on to watch it, there was still a little bit of skepticism because you have seen modern superhero movies like Black Panther and all of that. And it's still like the idea that a Spider-Man movie too, a Spider-Man movie as well, could be as good and as into visual storytelling as that movie was, was a genuine surprise for myself and I can say for you. Yeah, even besides superhero films, just massively hyped things, there's Mm. always like, oh, is it going to live up to the hype? And it did. And it did. It was one of those things where it's like, oh man, that was just a really joyful, 
cinematic experience. I mean, we weren't a cinema, but like watching a movie experience. No, yeah, but it still comes across. If it's still feeling like a cinematic experience when you're watching it at your friend's house on a TV in mm. their lounge room, that says a lot. And that's what this movie has. And that, that that's what Spider-Verse managed to carry. And I think some of the Spider-Man movies, even the third Spider-Man movie in Raimi's films, lack that over time. They kind of just become stock standard and tired and they're just like going through the motions while here there are so many little moments in this first spider-man movie that i'm shocked to see there's just little quiet moments and and things like for instance there's a trope in movies and we see it all the time Mm -hmm. and it's in this movie almost gets subverted where the hero and the villain have their big fight and then the hero seemingly takes care of the villain and then the it goes away from the villain and it's about the hero and maybe they're doing something else. Like they're talking to someone or trying to save one else. Or they're like, oh, it's over. And then they walk away and then the villain comes back and attacks them. Yeah. You've seen that? Yes. What I love is in this movie, he crushes the Green Goblin with a brick wall. You see Green Goblin like, ah, and they play it like that. And then you see the hand come out of the bricks. And it's like a horror movie sting because Raimi. Yeah. And what happens? He comes out and Spider-Man just walks over and starts punching the shit out of him. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm still here. I'm not going to let you get up and do the spooky thing to me. And it's like, I don't see that in movies now. Yeah, that one. That's completely gone. True. That one That one actually did stand out a lot. Because when that wall came down, it was like flat on the <laughs> ground. I'm like, did he get like cartoon squashed? I know, I know that there's a part coming up where he gets like stabbed. So he's de- alive still. But <laughs> <laughs> and then he punches his way out. <laughs> yeah. And I just and I just love that Spider-Man just quickly walks over like he's already on his way and just starts beating the shit out of it. Like he doesn't do the gentlemanly thing where it's like, oh, I'll let you brush yourself off and get ready to the fight again. No, no, no. He's he's dirty. I guess I guess it is a guy in very like skin tight, stretchy outfit versus a guy in armor. So he's like, okay, well the arm you're wearing armor. You're not you're not going down just that easily. <laughs> And there's just several things like that and just other quiet moments, like any scene with Aunt May. Mm. I don't see a lot of those scenes in these superhero movies anymore. Like Aunt May in the fucking Tom Holland movies, her whole entire role is Marissa Tomei is hot. Let's ogle Marissa Tomei and comment that she's really hot. It's like, that's all she does. There's no quiet scenes where she she says something that's very meaningful. Or, or the quiet scene where she, she, no one says anything. Like Peter comes home and they just hug. Yeah. Yeah. And then Aunt May in this movie also has probably one of the best scenes in the entire Spider-Man universe. She she was speaking to God. Is that one of the most gloriously cheesy, wonderful things ever? When she's just praying. You don't even hear the glider. Usually you hear it before it comes, but this is one of the ones where you don't hear it. It just smashes through the bricks. And he's like, finish it! Like, he could hear it from outside. Like, he knew that she was praying yeah. <laughs> before he smashed in. At, at the, well, Finish her! He could, he could easily determine that she was praying, but he could somehow tell that she wasn't done praying. No, no, he knew he smashed in at the right time. He knew that she was almost done. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, let's, let's, let's kind of delve into some more of this stuff. So with Spider-Man, this film, Spider-Man Raimi, what did you, what did you think, uh, like, did it hold up for you? Yes, it did. Even in spite of the lacking special effects from today's standards? 
for me, I always remember liking the special effects in this film, mm. and I, I guess I don't have the best eye for special effects and mm. like little blunders and things like that. So when I was reading the trivia, and it was like, oh yeah, there was a moment here where you could see the halo of the artifact being moved around. Like, I, I took its word for it. I always kind of liked the. I, the the special effect I mostly think about, and I don't even think it's a special effect, it's the first scene where you have the green goblin at the fair and, like, mm. he he exits that scene by just flying away after, mm. like, you know, talking to Spider-Man and it turns around and flies away. Like, that always, that's always a thing that I remember in my mind being stuck out, just this... I, I I guess this is just going into the fact that I like the design of it. Just yeah. this really shiny thing that, like, you feel it's actually there and Willem Dafoe's actually wearing it. Mm. And you're seeing... I, again, I don't... I read in the trivia that apparently, like, not everything is 100% CGI, so I don't know mm. what's real, what's not. Um, but it always just kind of felt real to me. As someone who's actually gotten to see the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man suit in real life, because I saw it at a costume exhibition... Oh, I did too, actually. It looked CG in real life. I don't know how to describe it other than that. Like, in real life, when I saw it, I was like, that's real? Like, you know, you know what I mean? I think I did have a similar impression. It was on the roof of the place as well. Was like, it Was it, it like looks... you were going down escalators? And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, is that... Fed Square, right? Real, yeah. yeah. I was like, is this... Real and it is real. It was really the costume, but just the way that the you light the spe- specific shades of red and blue of that suit make it look very um, I don't want to say unreal, but surreal in a lot of ways. So there's some moments when you're watching this movie, it's like, no, no, that's actually him in the suit, and it's an actual thing. But it's just like the color palette of it is just very bizarre, and I think they fine tune that in the other two movies. But uh, yeah, it's what you're basically saying is. You did not care about the special effects because special effects are just a tool of storytelling. They are not the story. Yes. Special effects without a story can be a very boring thing indeed. Is that George Lucas? George Lucas. (laughs) And although this movie has special effects that have definitely been dated and aged, it doesn't matter to us. Maybe it's because we're nostalgic for it. We grew up with this movie. We don't want to admit it, but... The the characters, the set pieces, the humour, the lines of dialogue, the actions of our characters and inactions are compelling enough for us not to care, not to not care about the fact that that's a composite shot. You know, like, my favourite goofy shot, and it's been, it's an infamous one, is when he's got Mary Jane, when Spider-Man's got Mary Jane, and she, like, turns her head from left to right, but the wind of her hair and the motion in the background do not match at all. It's, like, completely <laughs> wrong. Okay. And Spider-Man's, like, stiff, because it's not actually him. It's just, like, a mannequin. <laughs> is this at the end of the fair yes, scene? Yes, near the end of the fair scene, when right. she's wearing her very... Um, the China dress. Un-PC <laughs> China dress. <laughs> yes, her very oriental dress with the chopsticks on the hair. By today's standards, that's a, a shunned upon thing. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. What's that phrase? Cultural appropriation. That's the one, yeah. Um. Yeah. So, this is a love story. Yes, it is. Did you remember that? Yes. I always do, but when the movie happens and the first line of dialogue is about Mary Jane and his love for her, I'm like, oh, that's right, this is a love story. Like, for some reason, I detach myself from it 
even though I, I personally enjoy it, I know people who don't, um, I personally enjoy the love story because I don't find it intruding on the main narrative as as much as other love stories in movies. Um, so it works for me. But what do you, what about you? How do you feel about the love story element of, of this? So the main narrative that I remember for the film is all of the stuff that Peter Parker goes through. And I am aware of the fact that, you know, there's stuff with Harry going on, stuff mm. with the love story with Mary Jane and all of the Norman Osborn scenes. But it's kind of like, I don't remember when each part fits into the overall narrative. Um, so seeing that it was all, you know, kind of well-placed, like all, where all of the Norman Osborn scenes, where all of the scenes with Mary Jane were placed. And Harry. And, and Harry, he was kind of related to all of them, I guess. Mm. Um, it did feel like it flowed together all very well. And all of the scenes with Mary Jane, to bring back that H word we kept saying, there, there was a lot of heart to it. There was, you know, we learned the history of it. We learned that there there was a Are You an Angel-esque line in the past um, and it's, it's a love story where at the end of the day, it doesn't have a typical resolution of them getting together. It has a resolution that is alternate to that and ties into uh, a major theme and idea that the film deals with. The fact that his weakness is, oh, I didn't even think of this, but going back to the H word, his weakness is the heart. As Norman points, as the Green Goblin points out to Norman. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I think what makes me appreciate it more so as an adult is I understand what they like about each other. There are some romances in movies, and again, since we're talking about Spider-Man, the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies in Spider-Man Far From Home... I have no idea why Mary Jane and 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 Peter Parker in in involved with one another have feelings for one another even know one another other than well because they're the characters mm-hmm. in that movie it does in the in the in those two movies it doesn't it doesn't translate to me in this it does because it's a central focus Peter Parker becomes Spider Man really to impress Mary Jane uh, at the beginning he wants to get the car. So he becomes a wrestler to get the money. And it's like it spawns from his... Yeah, his first few fights are all somewhat related to Mary Jane. Yeah, like with Flash Thompson, that fight. And and, and even and, Bonesaw. And his love for Mary Jane is childish and immature. He just likes her because he's loved her from he's, all of his life. But he doesn't... He's carrying on to the puppy love, yeah. He's got puppy love, yes. And he does all these things that a very childish interpretation of wooing the girl. I'll get a car like Flash does. I'll, I'll woo her with my superheroing skills. But as the movie shows, at the end of the day, what she really loves is not super, not Spider-Man and not the Flash Thompson-esque type money and wealth and being the super popular guy. She likes Peter Parker because he's mature. And that maturity is gained and garnered through this movie's journey of him. He becomes mature because of the actions he takes. Or the inactions, obviously, he, he, he has. And thus I understand his growth and maturity at the end when he rejects her love. But I understand he has more facets of love other than she's the girl next door that looks pretty. He has nuances 
to the admiration, adoration and love he has for her. And he even gets a little bit jealous of himself because she likes Spider-Man. Yep. And that's kind of fun. And then from her end, I completely understand where, what she loves about Peter Parker by the end of this journey. At the beginning, you know, she kind of plays it up like she doesn't know him. Because she's playing the the cool girl image, you know, the pretty girl image. You see that in that scene where, where after she's had the blow up with her dad and she goes to the backyard and she starts talking to Peter. Mm-hmm. She's like a real person. She's not like this cartoon facade we've seen for the whole movie at that point. Even when she was kind of flirting around with Peter with the photos, that was still her playing up. Mm-hmm. Um, acting, which again ties into why Mary Jane wants to be an actor, because she has to act to survive. Yeah, the, that first one you mentioned where they're talking in the backyard and then Flash comes up, like mm. the the literal walking journey of her from Peter to Flash, mm. like halfway through she transforms. Yeah, and yeah, when Flash comes on, she instantly turns on the cool girl image and she's giggling and laughing and all that. But the real, the real Mary Jane is someone who needs, who needs someone to pay attention to her, like to, to provide support, provide of some sort. for her, provide support and listen and actually care instead of her doing that for others with her being the cool girl who's always saying yes to things and modeling around and doing all of that and uh, and even on the. On the first day of Spider-Man, you know, being muscly, not wearing the glasses, like when he's following her from her house and she's really sad and then the car pulls up. Yeah. That's another transformation right there. And of course, then, she is in a relationship with Harry in this movie only out of the obligation of the fact that he has pursued her. Mm. And she thinks that she needs a relationship to define her. You even see it at the end with her trying to get with Peter at the gravesite of their friend's dad. And he has to push her back. And it's like, even then, it's still kind of showing you that. And you'll see this further explored in the next two movies. I think it was the grave of Uncle Ben. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they were at but the, it was funeral the funeral and of, they walked yeah. over. Yes, you're right. Uncle Ben. But you'll see in the next two movies as well of this that she has this this need of support and need to fill in that gap with a, with a partner of some sort. Oh, I'll get with J. Jonah Jameson's astronaut son. I'll get with this. Um, which, you know... By modern standards and blah, 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 you could say, oh, Mary Jane is a, a very weak female character. She's got, yeah, codependency. Yes, issues. yes, that's a whole thing. Yes, 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 whatever. Like, I just don't care at the moment. I'm focusing on, like, what works here is she sees Peter Parker for who he really is and that he's really the only person who cares about her because Harry doesn't actually care about her. The fact that we know, we know and she knows Harry doesn't actually care is because he gets all of his... He doesn't know her. He only knows her because Peter knows her. He uses all of these tricks of of uh, to get her heart because Peter tells him, inadvertently tells him, little things that he knows would woo Mary Jane. And she knows it. Like, there's that great scene where... I love it. I love there was lots of these things too, where Mary Jane's doing something and someone um, catcalls her and she like snaps back at them like, hey, shut up, you know, whatever. And there's this moment where Peter Parker is following her when she's just finished her job at the diner. Mm -hmm. And he calls her and she says like, hey, get away from me, you creep. And he's like, no, 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 it's me. And she's like, oh, Peter. Like, 
there's this inbuilt thing of when Mary Jane isn't actively in her social group and she's being catcalled, she ridges up and, and, and talks back and all of that. And she she has interiority of her own rights. And then you have that conversation with her and Peter and she, he, they're talking about Harry and how Harry, he's a great guy, but he, he doesn't live in what I call the real world. Because he's a rich, sheltered child who doesn't understand what it's like for those us poor people. Yeah, and whenever, <laughs> whenever we cut to the place where Norman Osborn lives, we always see it's the top of a skyscraper <laughs> that has, like, castle-like elements <laughs> to it. And it's like, oh, is this, like, an office? No, this is a guy's house. <laughs> There's goblins. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great touch. But... Yeah, I think this is the stuff that I really look back on and I think I took for granted as a child that, yeah, you know, love story, love story. People don't like love stories. People either love them or hate them. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I appreciate that, hey, if you don't like it, that's fine. But I, I think it's kind of hard to say wholeheartedly that the film doesn't put in the work in the relationship, you could say you don't like it, but unlike the Star Wars prequels, and unlike the new Tom Holland Spider-Man movies, I can actually point to things that's actually in the film to tell you what they like about one another from their own personalities and their own journeys in the movie. Not, oh, well, it's assumed that they like each other because in the interim of movies, or you can assume, assume, assume. No, no, there's actual things in this film that you can look at and say, yes, there's a moment here. Like, one of the things I find fascinating, too, is, uh, you know, Mary Jane's from an abusive household. It's, it's very obvious. Yeah. But also kind of not, because when you're a child, you kind of don't take that for granted, right? I remember I was talking to you a couple of years ago, or maybe a year or two ago, about this, where it's just like, you notice her relationship with Peter starts to blossom and her relationship with Flash Thompson starts to fall apart when Flash Thompson puts on that male abusive figure that's similar to her dad where he's yelling and shouting and being physically violent. And when Peter does punch Flash Thompson across the whole room, she doesn't look 100% impressed. Mm. She looks mortified. And then a little impressed because you have to admit it is impressive. But... In another movie, she would have been like, oh, Peter. But you see Kirsten Dunst, her face, she's like terrified. And it's, you know, because she, she probably gets beat up by her dad or abused by her you know, household. And it's just a, a neat little thing that's put in the movie. And it's not like this is the defining trait of Mary Jane in the film is that she's from an abusive household. Mm. Right? But the fact that that's there you 100% can add up the steps of why she acts the way she does when she's with Flash Thompson and that group of guys, right? Mm-hmm. Yet when you're a child, you don't think about that, do you? No, you're right. Did you pick up on those elements watching it the other day? I uh, actually watched it this morning, yeah. I did notice those elements. Um... Again, maturity for something that you know is aimed towards young people. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, when you think about people in abusive situations, there is that whole idea of putting on the... Again, going back to acting, you know, you're putting on this happy facade to show that everything's okay. Mm. And this film highlights moments between the facade where she's... 
being honest with herself and then she finds herself in a situation where she has to immediately put on the facade and you see how, oh, it's an effective facade, but we saw what was happening immediately before it. People often criticise that the movies are too campy and too on the nose. But I think sometimes the things that this these films do with the Raimi ones is, yeah, they slather it on there very thick. But I find that they're kind of done in a way to distract you. Because we're talking about, oh, Mary Jane's putting on like this facade, this mask, dare I say. And then you have Persona, someone yes. else in, a, in the movie who literally has a mask that they talk to, to switch personas, right? And they literally talk to themselves in the mirror. And people get distracted by that. And not think about how it's the same type of thing about putting on this different version of yourself. It's obviously happening with Peter Parker, of course, with Spider-Man, but Mary Jane as well. This isn't just a story about uh, a teenage boy who has to put on a Spider-Man outfit and he has to grapple with, ooh, great power, great responsibility, and like, ooh, my true identity and my secret identity and the villain doing the same. You also have Mary Jane doing it, but in a much more realistic, like in a less superhero way, but more just a real world way of, you know, she's probably getting abused in some way and she, to cope, uses her fascination with acting to act up this heightened version of herself using her feminine charms and wilds and beauty. Yep, that's... I think I think I probably mentioned this like two episodes ago, but it, you're putting on different personas around different people. The word persona literally means mask in Latin. Yeah, and I think it's okay for these movies to slather it on. I'll admit wholeheartedly, out of all the movies we've reviewed, this is probably the most nostalgia goggles I have on and rose-tinted glasses and possibly, all that. Possibly, possibly. For me, it's just I just can't help but separate it, but... I think it's okay because the films let us, the audience, know and they themselves know exactly what type of movies they are. You know, like when you start this movie, you know what you're getting, don't you? Yeah. And you get it, but with some some surprises of maturity, a little bit more intelligent than just the dumb blockbuster superhero movie, but you know from the beginning, this is cheesy fun. True, but and you can compare this episode as it's going right now to when we did Small Soldiers, where that was also a film from our childhood, mm. but we were admitting to ourselves, yeah, you know what, there are weak elements of this film, but our nostalgia somewhat holds it up. Yeah, and I think with that one, no, coming back as an adult, you notice that it didn't know what it wanted to say. Yeah. Well, this, you know, you know it... It is so clear what the themes are and what it's honing in on and what it's saying and what it's playing on. And it's not just great power comes great responsibility. There's also themes of fatherhood and father-son dynamics. And, uh, yeah, like I said, all of this stuff about, you know, uh, identity and all of this. But this does not negate the fact that Bonesaw is ready. He was ready. Let's not forget Bruce Campbell's in all of these movies. Yes, that's and true. And the video game. <laughs> that's true. He was the narrator in all of them. we got to talk about the funny shit in the movie. Oh, there's so much funny shit, yeah. <laughs> Although we talk very seriously, these movies have become very memeified in the world. Does that affect you when you watch something? Like, if you ever watch Shrek, can you actually just watch Shrek again? Or is it kind of... Uh, tainted by the internet because to me you know what 
nostalgias, my power, my my blind goggles. I can just watch these Spider-Man movies and not think about it's pizza time. You know, I I just watch them and I'm like, yeah, cool. And then I remember the memes way after. But what about you? You're not as, you know, you don't have as much of an attachment or haven't watched them as as frequently as I have. Oh, yeah, definitely not to your extent. Um, Yeah, memes are very interesting. I know that we... (laughs) With Shrek, that one seems to just be engulfed in the memes. I, I'd be mm. curious to watch it again just to see what it really is like. Uh, maybe I'll pick it at some point. Underneath the all the memes. <laughs> Underneath all the memes. With this one, I feel like there is... I feel like with this one, there's a lot of affection for the film itself behind a lot of the memes. Yeah. Like, I've heard in recent years a lot of people, like, quoting the Green Goblin and you know, adding their own spin to some of his lines just to, you know, play around with it a bit more. I feel like the memory of this film being just a joy to watch is fueling a lot of those memes. Mm. When I was watching this film, I guess the only one I really remembered was, you know, Bonesaw is ready and and a lot of just Willem Dafoe's performance. And yeah, one of the memes I always have encountered recently that just I go, oh, that's a meme, which is, you know, I'm something a bit of a scientist myself. Yeah, that, that one... one's become a real big one at late. I'm like, really, that one? When he said it in this film, it was this moment of like, oh yeah, I've seen that image and the <laughs> subtitle like around. But... And his smirking face. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I think there's also one of, and it's one of those ones where it's an ironic. Uh, interpretation of the scene. I think the glasses thing, where it's like blurry, not blurry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that one gets used as a thing of like you put on the glasses to read the blurry thing. When in the film, it's the opposite. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've I've heard that one's a meme. Um, but yeah, I I think it's just all lathered in the fact that there are enjoyable things in this film. I feel like if the film wasn't so enjoyable, maybe the memes wouldn't stand up as hard. And obviously as well. the second Spider-Man movie for the longest time, and even still now, is heralded as one of the truly great superhero movies. So, you know, that one, I, there are plenty of memes, of course, the pizza time, and him holding the train, and them carrying him like he's Jesus, and he's like, with, with the move pe- away, boys. With the pizza time thing, are you talking about the video game track of the no, pizza delivery? No, in the movie, when he's delivering pizzas at the very beginning, mm-hmm. he smacks the pizzas down on the table, and he, I swear he says, it's pizza it, okay. pizza time. I'm not sure I've seen that one pizza around time. much. Oh, I, I you'll know the... see the image, and you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the one of like the screenshot of the YouTube video for like, Spider-Man 2 pizza theme from the video game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like really cheesy, cheesy. Cheesy, ha <laughs> ha. That pizza cheesy. Yeah, uh, cheesy, jaunty track. What was one moment that gave you a really big laugh when watching this? Was there a particular line or sequence or moment that you just had a real good chuckle at? Because mine was, was I don't know why, but when Green Goblin, after getting like thrown off his glider at the Thanksgiving Day parade or whatever it was, and the police are like, freeze! And he's just like, all right, boys! And he like puts his hands up at the end, and he immediately just starts <laughs> fighting them. Like, what was even the point? Yeah, he he basically <laughs> surrendered and then just started fighting. <laughs> You don't see that anymore, yeah. I miss it. I miss it. It's just unabashedly stupid in a glorious way, and that was one. I don't know why. It just really, really caught me. Really caught me. Yeah, you see that happen. It's like, oh, okay. He's gonna like counter them when they try to handcuff him. Nope, just straight into fighting. I also love um, 
it's funny, but it's one of those ones where it's played for both comedy and tension because it's a great moment where the the Thanksgiving dinner mm-hmm. and Norman tries to eat the thing and Aunt May smacks him and he has his like look like he's going to kill her <laughs> and it's it's kind of funny when that happened but I... it's also like that kind of funny where it's just like I shouldn't be laughing I'm a little bit afraid right now he does I don't want him to murder Aunt May. <laughs> Yeah, when that happened, it immediately made me flash forward to the the prayer scene, and it was like, oh, fan, fan head cannon. He that was revenge for smacking his hand when he wanted to eat the thing. <laughs> I guess I've always been fond of when Spider Man tries to web swing for the first time, and he just can't get the web out, and he says all these like silly things. Shazam, Shazam, up, up and away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a part later on where he like gets compared to Superman. A lot of DC um, references. Go go uh, go go web or something stupid. <laughs> go web go. Go web go. And then he just like yeah, flicks yeah. his hand a few times. Just very silly things that you know, I guess my childish sense of humor. That's just Tom McGuire improvising too. I think. I th- yeah, that's what it said. <laughs> yeah, that's a great moment. It just shows you there's a little bit of levity, and I always like in these movies. The hero is learning their powers and doing the first steps, and his is just like, okay, how do I make web go? Web, and he's like trying to figure out all the different hand moves and gestures and mm. stuff. I need, I think another great moment of comedy that I, 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 I don't know, I don't know, I really enjoy it is there's this one sequence in which it's like these man on the ground interviews with New Yorkers about Spider-Man and you just have all of them and they're all great. Like every single person, (laughs) every single response is like a great one. And you have like the guy singing in the subway about Spider-Man and giving him a hug. something about a bug. (laughs) Yeah. And I love that. That, Like I always have a smile and I'm always laughing during that because it's also like, it's the only time the movie does it and it never comes back at the other ones in my recollection. I f- no, I think it does happen in Spider-Man 2 because... Oh, because they turn against him, right? I remember there's a part where someone is singing and they're singing Where is Spider-Man or something like that. What happened to Spider-Man? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Probably the same dude again <laughs> because these movies are <laughs> consistent. Um, any other big big laugh moments or ones that got you going? Because every Green Goblin moment is a laugh moment from yeah, me. Yeah, true. When I walked in today to do the episode, I kept say- saying how much I love the way he pronounced the word moth. 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 Like a moth to the flame. Do you... We are both talking about Green Goblin like he's this great comedy character. But he's not supposed to be the whole time, right? But we find him very funny because of Willem Dafoe's over-the-top performance. If we find him so funny, does that undercut the role he's supposed to play as the intimidating villain? I guess the emphasis in funny would be on the word fun. It, it makes the film enjoyable. I don't think that the funniness of it kind of detracts anything. You, you kind of... I guess it kind of leads into the Batman villain Joker energy kind of thing, where mm. it's it's a character who's so crazed that it affects his, you know, morality. Like, he has he has a whole speech, actually, about good and evil in this film. We're not so different, you and I... <laughs> Yes, classic Austin Powers. Um, where, yeah, they the hero and the villain basically outline their their alignments, I guess. Yeah. Where, and I I actually really enjoyed yeah Spider Man's part in that where he just straight up said, "Hey, doing good is the right thing to do. I've always been good." And <laughs> thinking back on the film, 
I guess there was never really a moment where he realised, oh, you have to be good. He just always was this kind of good person. Well, when he let the guy get away. That's when... And that was, yeah, the kind of slip in it. That was his low point, right? Yeah. Him in this behaviour. But I but I Telling Uncle Ben that you're not my dad, stop stop trying to be, that's... Yeah. It's him being the jerk. Yeah, I saw... And I saw the resolution of all that kind of being like a return to form more so than, you know, a realisation of like, oh, I can't just be bad or neutral, I have to be good. Yeah, you have to take action. Mm-hmm. I think it works because there are some moments where the serious threat nature of him is played genuinely. Like, I really enjoy in a the it's not even a Green Goblin scene, but it's a Norman scene. The scene that like grosses me out, and like I always forget it's there as well because it's like you think of Green Goblin as being like he dressed up as a little old lady to burn this building down and all <laughs> that, right? And he then throws little. His little pumpkin, um, not bombs, but the, the little spinning blades and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. His it, batarangs. Yeah, it's you who's out, Gobby. Um, the moment in which he leaves the dinner, uh, you know, the Thanksgiving thing, and, and Harry yeah. goes and confronts him about it, his whole entire, like, yeah, I know who she is. I know who that Mary Jane is. I've married a woman like her before. It'll cost you money and all this. And he's just like, once you've had your way with her, you know, just dump, you know, just throw away and all. And that, like, is so fucking... And that's just Norman. Yeah. That's not even him being Green Goblin. That's just Norman. It reminds you, oh, that's right, Norman isn't a good guy. He, so you don't have to feel sorry for him. Because that's who he is. Him being the jovial guy who's like, oh, I'm a something of a scientist. That's all a persona. Again, to go back to personas. Yes. The, woe is me, I'm just a poor scientist. No, no. The guy who injects himself... Uh, the guy who gasses himself so that he doesn't have to lose his business because it's not like he needs the money it's about the pride this conversation's actually reminding me of a conversation from an episode we had last year when we were talking about leland palmer yeah this idea of like oh an evil has now entered this character and uh the film that in question brings up this question of like how bad was he before this kind of thing you know, came to him. This is far more clear on that, though. Like, the very first scene with him and Harry in the car before he even gets out of the car kind of really establishes what a what a hard-ass Norman is, but he puts on this, hey, guys, hello, fellow kids. You know, that kind of... Perso- you know, he puts it on. Yeah, I, I think in the car itself, when it's just him and Harry kind of has the the, uh, the detached element of his character, of, like, you know, how wealthy he is And then when others. this other scientist guy is, like, back to formula, that, that snap look of, like, I'm going to fucking kill you right here mm. and now for saying in front of the general. And then he does kill him later. Yeah. With his first lines as... One of his first lines as Green Goblin... Back to formula. <laughs> but um, for me, one of the Norman scenes where he doesn't have the suit on that I think about is, <laughs> and I guess the editing and the acting play a really big role in it, is in the one where he has the conversation with him in the mirror and just all these... Oh. That that was a really fun scene to... Uh, fun in the sense of like filmmaking, just how it all came together. And like, acting. Acting, filmmaking, editing, just... I really love that scene. Everyone always points to Willem Dafoe, a pile of funniness, especially because he's in the armour for most of it, is his, is his voice. Moth to the flame. But it's his physicality, especially in that mirror scene. Like, when he's playing Norman, you can really tell the difference. And it's not just that he does the evil, goofy smile and the tilting his brow forward, but, like, his whole body and he... Even, like, it's the way he holds his head, but it's almost like his hair changes... 
mm. when he's the two different ones. It's just because of the way he, he's positioning his head. Yeah, and I was really paying attention to like, oh, is the thing happening in the mirror different to what's happening to the man like there? But no, it literally is reflecting yeah. the actor there. And I thought that, that was really great. Just the way the, the editing hides when, you know, real Norman would appear in the mirror and things like that. One of the things that we've talked about slightly on the pod, but mainly off the pod, because we haven't actually talked about a lot of superhero movies on the pod, and when we have, they've been by auteur directors like your Christopher Nolan, mm-hmm. and this, right? and Venom, if we count that. Oh, classic auteur director of, of Venom. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, one of the things that we've talked about, like, you weren't a big fan of Black Panther, is... It, there's no voice behind these movies. It's just like corporate product movie. There's like no unique director's voice. That's what people like about Guardians of the Galaxy. That's what people like about Thor Ragnarok is this director with a very specific style and vision has bled through the corporate machine. Hence, uh, Edgar Wright left doing Ant-Man because he felt like they weren't letting him be creatively fulfilling in the way he wants to. Right, right. Um... And then you go back here and you're like, oh, wow, this is Raimi all over. Even if you haven't seen another Raimi movie, they don't make Spider-Man movies like this movie where a part of the character, one of the characters of the movie is just the direction, the choices made, like the camera movements, the quick cuts or the or slow, slow, just static shots or the musical stings that are used and the snap zooms and... There's a real and the and the performances, you know. It's not just these leads, but you have all these background characters that are matching the cheesiness. Like uh, everyone in J. Jonah Jameson's office mm-hmm. feels like they're from the 1940s, <laughs> right? Yeah. Don't they all like Elizabeth Banks as the secretary woman, right? Who comes in and she's like this cartoon character. And you're like, oh, okay, that's yeah, yeah. No, no one's on J. Jonah Jameson's level, but they're all in the same. But they feed into They're in him. the same world, yeah. And that's important. If everyone else wasn't in the same world and J. Jonah Jameson was just like that, there would be a disconnect there because he would just be this very weird cartoon character in his own office. Yeah, the rest of the world of Spider-Man has been as cartoony as he is, but if you went into his office and everyone was just like normal reporter, people were like, oh, J. Jonah Jameson. But they're all wacky characters who like come in and they're like, sure, they want, they want us on page six, but we got them on page seven. And J. Jonah Jameson's like, ah, I don't give a shit about that. I guess, yeah, that whole, that whole location kind of feels like an evolution of, you remember in Spice World, the... <laughs> yeah, the boss, Barry Humphreys. Barry Humphreys, like that one... You Where saw it that, rained inside. yeah, yeah, yeah. You had that one character and like the one person who comes to his office to you know talk to him, but this one has like the whole side office you see, and <laughs> people are all working together. Yeah, and the well, we're gonna talk about the man. These films too, Spider-Man films. Some of the, I guess, universally agreed best casting of any characters. Mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe. Uh, fucking Alfred Molina in the second one is Doc Ock. Rosemary Harry, uh, Rosemary Harris is Aunt May. Oh yeah, aren't they gonna get Alfred Molina back for another back. film? Yeah. yeah, 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 back because there's no reason to get anyone else. Mm-hmm. Same with J.K. Simmons; he's back as J. Jonah Jameson in the MCU because they literally couldn't recast that character because everyone would just reject it because he's the only guy. He's the only guy, and his version in the MCU completely different characterization to this one. 
but you believe he's still J. Jonah Jameson because he just, he knows. He just, uh, J.K. just has the magic. And yeah, Tobey Maguire, pretty great casting. Now, some people don't like his Spider-Man because he's not quippy enough. To me, I thought that he was plenty quippy. I just think he wasn't snarky. I think that's the difference. I think people mm. want him to be far more Deadpool snarky. Like, yeah, Spider-Man makes snarky comments, but it's like his quips just kind of match what this Peter Parker would come up with as quips. Yeah, but because he has the mask on, he'd be like a bit more brave enough to say them. And they're still dorky. Yeah. (laughs) Because he's a dork. It's not like he's suddenly cool when he puts on the mask. I guess there is the reason we remember the it's you who's out, Gobby, out Out of of your your mind mind line. (laughs) Because it's amazing. Um, There's the um, accidental homophobia from him when he versus uh, a bone saw. Yes. (laughs) That was great. (laughs) But uh, J.K. Simmons is J. Jonah Jameson. Is he probably in the top five perfectly cast in a comic book superhero movie characters ever? For all the listening people uh, listening right now... And the ones watching, too. The thing I'll tell you about Ryan is one of the notions that he's said many times throughout the years is that J.K. Simmons was so perfectly cast that the character can no longer be played by anyone else Yeah. in anything. Hence why he didn't appear in any of the, the... the amazing Spider-Man, Gar- the amazing the Garfield film, the uh, Andrew yeah. Garfield films, and and apparently not until like an end credits gag for one of the yeah MCU once his ones. DC um the contract was up because he was uh Commissioner Gordon in the DCU until he finally got away from that contract and so now they can have him again yeah <laughs> um so you're stating what I think. But what do you think, having actually watched these movies growing up? And he's become, like, I can't even say that his performance has been a meme. I think people just genuinely use his performance online as, like, as, this is great. Just pictures of him (laughs) online, just... Again, it goes back to the the thing I was saying, just the... You associate the performance to the thing that is being shown as a meme. For a guy who's doing a cartoony character... He, there's someone who acts myself. I don't know how he does it. Uh, you know, obviously Sam Raimi has to be involved too, but he adds this. Uh, th- yeah, he makes him a three-dimensional cartoon character when the script isn't necessarily doing that. He adds this. He adds a gravitas to a guy that has no gravitas, like uh, like no charm, but he's charming. Like it's it's a. I don't know how to describe it. We all know it when we watch it. You just sit back and you feel like, oh, I'm watching a master at work. Playing what is an incidental role in a movie about a kid running around in tights. You know what? It was actually kind of shocking to see how little he was in the film because of just how memorable he is. And I know that there's two other films (laughs) in this franchise where he probably appears a lot more, but... I did think that he was in this one a little bit more than, I think, just two or three scenes. Yeah, but his scenes are very memorable because all of his lines <laughs> are, like, 100% pure fried gold. Yeah, and and his effect is shown throughout the film, where, like, mm. at the end when the New Yorkers turn against Green Goblin, that's kind of them rebelling against the smear campaign. Yeah. But, of course, one of the things that people have latched on to, and I remember thinking this as a kid, is he's the real hero. <laughs> Because there's this scene in which 
Green Goblin smashes through his wall. Oh, right, yes. I know what you mean. And he lifts him up by his throat, and he's going to murder him. And, of course, he knows, J. J. Jones Jameson knows that he he will get murdered by this guy who's murdered every single person he's encountered. Um, He asks, he tells him, like, who sends the photos of Spider-Man? Tell me, tell me. And people talk about this online. They show, like, the two, like, two photos. And, you know, it's like, I I don't know. And people are like, oh, my God, he's protecting Peter, blah, blah. And then you have the detractors being like, no, J. Joe Jameson doesn't... He probably just doesn't even know who Peter is. He doesn't give a shit. It's like, no, no, oh, guys. Right, yeah. The scene, literally, Peter just is walking out the door. He's in the doorway. Yeah, yeah. Looking. He knows who Peter is. He could just literally point and say, that's the guy. But he doesn't because, as is with the comics, as is with the video games, as is with a lot of J. Joe Jameson's appearances in, in, in Spider-Man, he's, he's a good guy. He's a good journalist. Is just he has a bias. He has an unprecedented hatred and bias towards Spider-Man. But it's not really unprecedented because he does explain it in these movies and in the thing of he just doesn't trust a masked vigilante. And it's like, yeah, he's right. Why should we trust a masked vigilante? Because <laughs> it's also like J. Jonah Jameson in, in this movie he serves as a great counterbalance to like Perry White and all of these and Clark Kent and all of these other superhero things where the press love the hero, like in the Batman movies, where there's like, oh, we don't know what this Dark Knight's doing, but oh, good on him. In this, it's like, no, no, from day one, there's one journalist at least who's just like, or one editor in chief who's just like, no, no, no. Masked vigilante? No. Criminal or menace? You know, like, no, I'm not going to trust him. Now in the MCU, the whole slant on him is he's, he's an Alex Jonesy type. Yeah. Again, different characterization. But J.K. Simmons has, in the brief uh, after credit scene, has already captured... Oh, he's, he's nailing it. He's nailing it. Yeah, like, we... Yep, that's I, I Yeah, I can see the transformation because J. Jonah Jameson's slants and, you know, smear campaigns are all based around this, like, theory that, like, oh, he must be working together, he must be causing the trouble. Yeah. He really is a masterful performer in this, and, uh, you know, as a kid, I took it for granted because as I've grown up, I realised J.K. Simmons has just been in, around all the time. He's just been in everything. Snowman, Jennifer's body, yeah. Uh, whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one image for that is... Um, you didn't even mention Juno? <laughs> <laughs> we did, and we did that this year, I think. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, yeah, the the image of him like holding his Oscar for Whiplash and just someone putting subtitles, like, I don't want this damn trophy, I want pictures of Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> did you know in the second Spider-Man movie, there's a... There's um, some scenes that are cut. Oh yeah, of you've, him you've the, told me this. You've him in the me Spider-Man this. outfit, and the only reason they're cut is because he looks much, much better in it than Tobey Maguire. Like he's super buff. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, we can't have J. Jonah Jameson be fucking ripped. We can't have that in our movie. It's like such a problem because he's in the outfit, but without the mask on, but with a big fat cigar in his mouth, and it's just so fucking hilarious. Um, what? Is a set piece in this that really, really, you really like? Because there's several, you know, there's several action-y set pieces or like hero v. villain type thing or all of that. Uh, I think mine has to be, you have to choose Spider-Man, the pretty girl or the poor screaming children. You know, like, and he has to drop them. That, that is a great sequence, yeah. I, I'd put that up there with, 
a lot of the ones where he's got the first suit. So, you know, where mm. he's fighting against Bonesaw and when he's uh, chasing down the guy that killed Uncle Ben. Yeah, yeah, that, that whole sequence is really good. Yeah, it's a long chase through the streets and then this, like, dark and dilapidated building. A lot of darkness going on. You don't see their faces. Yeah, then there's a bit of light and you get revelations. You see him hanging off the roof. You know, when the, the guy's, <laughs> yeah. like, looking around with his gun, like, where the fuck is he? And he's doing the... It's so weird. You're like, oh, this is the first time we saw the classic Spider-Man thing. Yeah, yeah. In a the, movie. The kind of, like, upside-down yoga pose kind yeah, of thing. It's, yeah, isn't it? It still affects me. Like, oh, this is the first time we got to see that. Yeah. In a movie. Wow, fuck. True, yeah. yeah. Something so small, but yet something so iconic. Yeah. In another film, that would have been, like, a horror shot. Like, oh, fuck, he's there. Well, it, it is. could be it's, anywhere. It's a Raimi movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it definitely had its horror leanings. I think one of the great sequences of action that um, everyone agrees or holds up and is often used is is in the flaming building, right? Where Peter has to do the matrixy slow-mo dodging of the things and his arm gets cut. And then that obviously leads to the great suspenseful sequence in, in, um, in the apartment and he's on the roof and the blood drops and then and, and Willem Dafoe, like, Senses it because he's got heightened senses because of the because of his fucked up because super he's, serum. He's going through his own yeah origin story. Yeah, it's a it's a story about puberty. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always forget how actually violent the final f- confrontation is between the two. Like how they're smashing each other through bricks and they're, they're bleeding mm. and they're like playing dirty. The damage on that mask, yeah. It's, is it confronting to also see that it's actually a lot of in-camera fist-to-fist fighting? Because I remember you, and you can you, you can dispouse upon this. Of I think I know what you, we're you saw about. Black Panther and the final fight between <laughs> the hero and the villain. You said it to me looked like a PlayStation video game from like the PS2 era. Whereas like Black Panther and other Panther guy fight, and it's like two CG black objects fighting in a black void. I I have that notion more with the climax of Venom, where, Venom. where yeah, it was just two two dark figures at night on a dark bridge. Just mm. what's going on? Um, yeah, with Black Panther, the that they had that element, but also like faraway shots as well. So it's like, what is going on? So it's just delightful, isn't it, to see. Here, two distinct characters, and although we would complain, there's lots of it's lots of quick cuts, the f- hits and punches. But with Sam Raimi's fluid camera movements, and then he knows the right time to cut, it just builds the momentum to when you finally get to the slow moment where, oh, I'm injured, Pete, help me, you're my savior, please, I love you, help me, let come here, come here, so I can betray you, because. <laughs> That's him. That's just Green Goblin at that point. It was just like Norman playing into it, you know, right? Like, it's not actually Norman. And if it yeah. is, he's he's a jerk. If Norman is there, it's probably for the final line, yeah. Yeah. Don't tell Harry. And then he gets impaled with his own glider. I love... And it's played for comedy. Oh. <laughs> and then he gets stabbed with his own glider. Oh. <laughs> what, a, what a dick move. Yeah. Here's how impressive his performance as Green Goblin is. They somehow managed to shoehorn into the other two movies Willem Dafoe appearing in some fashion just because why waste a good thing? Mm-hmm. Why waste a fucking good thing? I do miss that in some movies where it's just like, this is objectively great, but we kind of wrapped it up, but let's just find ways to shove it in there because, come on, we all we all want more. 
sometimes you do need a bit of fan service, yeah. Yeah, fan service and just service in general. Ah, oh. from what I remember, it did tie into the plot of the third film. At oh least, yeah, they but... they always tied into something, but it's just like oh. Oh, it's him again. Oh, I, I miss him. I miss my boy. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to talk about? Oh, we've got to talk about the kissing upside down in the rain. We would be remiss if we didn't. Yes, that's an iconic moment. Is it probably one of the most iconic kisses in cinematic history? I definitely remember at the time it was something that stuck in the public consciousness a lot. I think I've seen it parried a fair bit. I remember it would always be one that I would think back on. Mm. In recent years, I kind of don't think about it that much, I guess. See, it still sticks in my brain. I think it is just one of those scenes where it's just such a simple idea. I mean, it on the Spider-Man end of that shot, it definitely conveys his character. You know, he's upside down. He's doing the thing I described as upside down yoga pose. Yeah, and, you know, pulling down the mask and kissing him upside down in the rain. It's just... Rainy, for a guy who is known for the Evil Dead movies and, like, gruesome horror and, like, black comedy, he has always had, and we saw this in his Wizard of Oz movie that we did, that was him, yeah. He has always had a, a streak of genuine sentimentality there mm. that rings through the genre filmmaker. And this is one of those moments in which he took the genre of the superhero brand and used it effectively to blend with the romantic element. It is just such a simple image. Spider-Man hanging upside down on his web her pulling down the mask and getting a kiss and then him going away, webbing away. It's, yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> like, we haven't talked about a lot of flaws of the movie. Do we really have any? Um, Other than the teacher should have been the main character? <laughs> I was literally about to say, oh, not really a flaw, but we were joking about this one character before we started recording. In fact, I think maybe we were recording. Yeah, he's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yes, um, at the very beginning of the film, the film begins with a high school excursion to, or a field trip, sorry, to a museum or research laboratory about spiders. Mm. And the teacher who's, in, who's, you know, monitoring, chaperoning the students, <laughs> very, very interesting performance, uh, character realisation all around. I don't know what's wrong with him. Is he okay? <laughs> For one thing, he doesn't look all that much older than the students. No. His vocal delivery, for the most part, is very hushed. Restrained. Restrained. Like, I, I kept thinking of, uh, like, Godfather 1 Marlon Brando at times. He has only one moment in which he felt like a real teacher, and my wife Rachel, who is currently teaching, commented upon it, which is his introduction is these kids, and it's a far away shot, it's just a panning shot, these kids are like throwing some pieces of bullshit at one another, and he just catches it and nonchalantly says, that's enough of that. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way he delivered it, he was like, yeah, that, that, that's a teacher. Mm. But then the rest of his lines, he's just like, I told you. About not talking here, okay? Come with me, Mr. Parker. <laughs> he's, a, he's a weird... Uh, my complaints is the script can be a little bit too on the nose and too exposition heavy. 
Uncle Ben's first series of lines are just letting you know so much information and it doesn't come across as natural, even though the performance is great. He just has lines like he's screwing in a light bulb and she's like, thanks for screwing in that light bulb. And he's like, well, as someone who worked in a power plant for 35 <laughs> years, who's been recently laid off because of the economy. And he's like saying all shit like that. And uh, there's a few too many hammering it on the hammering the nail too heavily. Like we got it. Even mm. for the campy, cheesy tone, there is some stuff that's like, okay, okay, I get it. I'm not a fan of James Franco's performance. That's another thing. I'm not a fan of his performance as Harry in this movie. I think he's a lot better in the second one. They give him a bit more to do. But in this one, he seemed like just... Um, I, you know, I've just got to say, it, he seemed like he was just stoned. He has this very droopy, dreary look on his face, slack jaw, just mumbling a lot of his lines. I didn't buy that this was a rich kid in yeah. the way that he was supposed to be. I bought that this is a rich kid who's high, but I didn't believe that he was Harry. I didn't believe that he was raised by Willem Dafoe at any point, even if he was rebelling against Norman. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm also not a huge Franco fan. I've never been that impressed by him ever. Uh, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, the the scene where uh, Norman leaves the Thanksgiving dinner and he has the confrontation with Harry, and mm. when when Mary Jane says the line, you know, thanks for standing up for me, and he kind of defends his father, I felt like that was a bit of a dissonant thing. Like, oh, yeah. is he actually that invested in his father's reputation that he would you know argue back and defend him in that moment like that that was a moment where it was like oh i i'm not sure i buy this i just feel like a lot of the time especially in the final scene where he's like spider-man's gonna pay it's almost like he's saying the lines through gritted teeth he's just like spider-man he's gonna pay like it's, it's a little bit too overacted and then underacted in a lot of scenes and i don't feel like out of our main cast, I feel like he's the one that doesn't um, blend with the tone of what the movie is. Because everyone's cheesy. I would say Mary Jane's the least cheesy because she's being the most real person in the movie. Mm. And the most cheesy moments she has are the moments in which she's playing it up and also the moments in which she gets saved where she's like, ooh. But... Harry, I, I I don't know if it's just they didn't know what to do with his character yet. Franco's still trying to find it. Raimi maybe didn't know how to direct it. But in the second one, I remember him being better. But in this one, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah. It felt like, you know how when you watch a movie years later and there's, there's someone in the cast who's like super famous now mm. and it kind of distracts you when you watch it. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, that's Jimmy Kimmel's in a movie. You know, like it's something like that. That's how I kind of feel about James Franco in this particular movie is, oh, that's James Franco. Because when I watched it, I didn't know who he was, but now I do, and I find it somewhat distracting. Because I'm like, yeah, he just seems like he's kind of zonked out. Mm. In the second movie, from my recollection, and, and the third, he seems far more invested was, and he gets more to do. I was about to say, going back to meme ability, he gets the memes in the third film. I think it's my biggest laugh in the whole trilogy is his smirking smile as he eats some cake and then a truck goes past and he's gone. Like, where did he go? He's <laughs> delicious. Did he, just, <laughs> did he dunk under the table? <laughs> <laughs> like, ah. Uh, um, anything else you want to mention about Spider-Man? 
Um, moth to the flames. Misery, misery, misery. <laughs> I was I was surprised when that line came so late. I'm like, oh yeah, wasn't that a wasn't that a line that he says in this film? And it's, it's right at the end. One of his most famous. Um, I th- yeah, I would have thought it would be on the rooftop, but no, it was down at the climactic fight. The only other actor I've ever heard rumblings of wanting to play Green Goblin, because that's a thing. Willem Dafoe, like, went out of his way to try and get this role. Okay. That's cool. Mm. He, like, really championed, and, and, you know, he wanted to do his all, most of his own stunts, and he seemed really invested in this character. And you can see it in his performance. Everyone's invested in these characters of this silly superhero movie that could have been a massive failure. But I don't get that, even with James Franco, I don't get that no one's just... I don't feel like they're cashing in a check. Even the bit players like J.K. Simmons, where he's in it for like a couple of scenes and all these years later, we look at him and say, wow, that is one of the best performed characters in any superhero movie. Mm. Because he cares. And same with Willem Dafoe. And the only other actor I've heard rumblings of wanting to play it is Matthew McConaughey. I've heard he wants to give Norman... I've heard over the years rumors or rumblings on the ground of him wanting to have a go at playing Norman Osborn and he could do it he's a good actor but I think most people agree especially now with the news that Alfred Molina's returning as Doc Ock that no we need Willem Dafoe back we need Willem Dafoe back especially I think you can attest to this in recent years, Willem Dafoe has kind of gained real popularity with people of our age because we grew up with him. But there's, I guess, the memification, but also he's just been appearing in, like, lots of really great films recently, like like The Lighthouse. So the appeal of having him back is is really there as well. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what he can bring back to a similar type of performance. Yeah, maybe see how he could play it up, like... I can 100% see him playing it 100% seriously and nailing it because obviously he's he's playing it for some for some fun here, but you can see him doing a dark, broody version as well because he's just that good of an actor. Mm. Um, I can't think of much else, so I think it's time for us to hear what the recommendation for next week is. You ready to hear what the listening people's choices? Yes, I'm keen. So we're going to be doing a movie with a lead actor of one of your favourite movies we've ever covered on the pod. Mm. Stallone. I thought it'd be Stallone, yeah. <laughs> you did? Cool. I was like, oh, I did like Oscar. It's probably someone from that. We're going to do the famous film Tango and Cash, where Kurt Russell, one of my faves, and Stallone, one of your faves, <laughs> apparently, yeah, <laughs> team up. Well, you love the Rocky movies. We have this conversation a lot of, it's just a film series that I refer to. And remember a lot of details from... Do I remember a lot of details from it? Yeah. Okay. I've often asked you random questions about Rocky, and you're like, oh, here's the details. When, if I asked you similar things about other movies you have seen with me... I guess that's a good question. You'll be like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, Sam Raimi directed the, the Wizard of Oz movie? Oh, that's right. Like... But if I ask you, so, Mickey, and you're like, oh, yeah, Mickey, Burgess Meredith. I'm like, you know who Burgess Meredith is? And you're like, yeah, he played Mickey. And I'm like, fucking what? And you're like, uh, he played the penguin, too. And you're like, he played the penguin? I didn't know that. I knew he played the penguin. But the penguin? I didn't know that. But, uh, yeah, Tango and Cash, uh, Paul recommended it to us. So he recommended it a while, like, way at the start. So I feel like we owe our good friend and listener, Paul, uh, Tango and Cash. Sorry, which Paul is this? 
polls who've commented for Tango and Cash. <laughs> You'll find out next week when I get Paul on the pod and be like, here we go, Paul. Um, so Tango and Cash. So make sure to li- watch that movie and listen to it, I guess, with your ears um, and feel it with your fingers and taste it with your tongue. Uh, any other... It's got a tangy, tangy... Any other senses I've missed? Uh, common. Um, and and dead. Um, see it with your dead. Um, yeah, so Bartek, a pleasure talking movie, 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 movie. <laughs> Did this film have when you watched it as a child you watched it in the normal cinema but did you did you understand it because i know your grasp of english didn't come in until later years and your childhood yeah i think that was around the point where i'd firmly firmly decided on english being decided you decided <laughs> did you you walked up to your mother and said uh uh mummy i'm going to speak english now I, look i'm 9 years old i think i got to settle on this english shit and then your mum shook her head and said, oh, okay, I'll put all the lectors away. And she like, <laughs> opened up a cupboard and put every single movie you owned with a lector on it into a cupboard and locked it away. And now it's ready to be opened again. I remember the key is like shaking. You know, it's weird. The, the two Polish things that I remember having didn't have lectors in them. I remember we had VHSs of just dubs of Toy Story and The Lion King. And they didn't have lectors. They didn't have lectors, I guess. For people who haven't been familiar with the famous <laughs> lector, what are lectors again? So lector uh, is a thing in Poland that is more popular than dubbing. It's an alternative that's more popular. Is when you have a film released in Poland... If they don't dub it, they tend to go with giving it a lector. Or TV shows as well. Or TV shows as well, yes. Just any sort of released media there. If they choose to give it a lector, a lector is where they have a man... Or I, I don't know if they have women lectors or if it's just one guy and or multiple usually things. there's a specific guy, like a big specific guy. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get straight to the point because I'm meandering. It's a guy who talks... Who, who says the lines in Polish, but he doesn't... It's not a dub because he isn't doing it as a performance. What they do is they quieten the audio of the film mm. so that this guy can speak over the line so that you can bear, just barely hear the line's original delivery and this guy's translation of what that line is at the same time. So in this mm. film, you might have, I don't know, Spider-Man saying, uh, it's you who's out, but it would be quieter than the Polish voice would be like, Something. And he says it in a dry, monotone, very flat delivery with no real performance or energy behind it. Yeah, yeah. I re- Just, it's delivering the information of what's being said. Yeah, the real emphasis on that this is not a performance. This isn't a guy performing. This is a guy lecturing you about what the line is. We tested it. It's on Netflix on some shows, and I yeah, showed you. Yeah, you told me about you, this. I think I showed you a quick clip of some of like a Stranger Things one or something. I think you couldn't you, be bothered logging in, so we just went to YouTube or something. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and you commented, "Wow, like this guy in particular. It sounds like he really didn't enjoy doing this one because he sounds particularly annoyed." And I'm like, "Okay." Oh, wasn't that like a Home Alone clip or something like yeah, that? Yeah, something. We watched some. Oh no, no, it was a lector for Johnny Mnemonic. We were looking up. Johnny. Was it Johnny? Yeah, like? and it had a lector on it. I was like, oh, this has a lector. And you're like, and you're like he, he sounds really annoyed doing this one. I've never heard one sound actively annoyed. I do remember that the one that we watched had some sort of tone to it that didn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. Because like, it's one thing to be monotone because, you know, dry delivery. But like having a tone 
a consistent tone for something. That's... Could you imagine if someone did a, an English lector and they and their whole English lector was just like, yeah, it's you who's out, Gobby. Out of your mind. Yeah, like... Screw s- you, Spider-Man. I offered you friendship and you, you spat it in my face. Yeah, like a <laughs> passive-aggressive sassiness. <laughs> <laughs> like it's the vocal delivery is like someone who got pickles on their burger when they didn't want any <laughs> right um well that's enough lector history people can find us on the internet facebook twitter spin posh presents we're always posting stuff on there we had some conversations about our harry potter stuff from last episode that was fun where can people email us we have an email where you can reach both of us at spit and polished at gmail.com Ah, thank you, Bartek, and rate and review us on whatever podcatcher allows it. I think the only way to uh, end this episode... Is with our true feelings. Okay, what's your true feeling? So, the character's named Green Goblin, and there's... You hear that name, and there's very obvious things that come to your head, and you think, Mm. okay, okay, well, I know what to expect from this character. Like a Power Rangers outfit, yeah. And there's a moment in this film where, oh, okay, well, this is clearly leading into the gimmick. It's at the very end, the climactic scene, the set piece you like where the Mm. New Yorkers throw rubbish at the Green Goblin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They throw it at him, and where is he in this? He is over the Hudson River. Yeah. So, obviously, the rubbish goes into the Hudson River. (sighs) And it's just very clear, like, okay, this is where he gives, like, the green speech of, like, you know, oh, do, do not pollute. And they don't do anything? Like, it's it seems like it's been set up, but nothing happens. It, it, and it, it kind of ruins the film for me. I know we were focusing on the positives, but, I, you know, I felt, like, in an optimistic mood because I had a giggle at one and point. And that's when I felt like he became the villain. When he didn't give that speech. Yeah, 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 killing kids and a woman. Sure, sure. But the fact that he didn't demean them for ruining the environment, that's when Norman crossed the line from normal man to monster. It's like, why green, though? Like, why can't it just be the mean goblin or something? <laughs> or green mean... Well, the no, green meanie! Well, it's, why green? Exactly. How did you want to end the episode? Well, my true feeling is very, very, very much the idea that I'm comfortable my seat is in a position in which my spinal cord is feeling really relaxed. These are my true feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, my my tongue has a little bit of a furry taste because I had lunch just before, and um, I'm I'm just you know a little bit sweaty. It's a little bit warm. That's how I'm. That's my true feelings. Mm-hmm. 